to a lot of people in our culture, Christianity doesn't make any sense. Uh, Buddhism makes sense, um, not necessarily because uh, of believing anything about Buddha, uh, but because uh, things like yoga and meditation uh, help people make it through the week. And in our culture, lots of things of native spirituality make sense because uh, a lot of people in our culture have a, a sense that on one hand, while what most grips us is what we can eat, what we can drink, uh, what we can wear, what we can earn, what we can live in, what we can drive, that at the same time there's a, a sense of mystery in life and, and often things like native spirituality can, can sort of deeply, uh, deeply touch us. Uh, but for many people in our culture, Christianity doesn't make any sense. How could one person's death save me? Like we can sort of understand, especially as we gather here uh, today uh, with Jim Flaherty just having died this week, Many people, I mean, I had never met the man, uh, but it was a shock to hear of his death. And, and we can understand maybe how uh, a death can shock us or touch us, uh, even a death of someone who happened long before we were born. But for many people in our culture, the idea that one's, one man's death, especially a man's death so long ago, could have any particular impact on me or any particular relevance for me or that it could save me just doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. And even this idea which Christians would talk about that Jesus is sinless often becomes a great puzzle to people in our culture. And often, if we're honest, uh, to people uh, in the pews, not, we don't have pews, in, in seats in churches. Because like, um, I was just reading uh, the story of a, of a, of a Muslim man who, who converted in, uh, to Christianity. He spoke very powerfully about the great conundrum that the sinlessness of Jesus causes many people. If Jesus was sinless and perfect, why didn't God hear his prayers? Why did God allow Jesus to die if Jesus was sinless? But for many people in our culture, the idea of Jesus being sinless is something that keeps Jesus far from us at arm's length, rather than making Jesus approachable and someone that we can have as a friend or a confide in or talk to. The sinlessness of Jesus pushes him far, far away so that there are many people in our country and many people maybe even in churches that the fundamental story of Jesus, the fundamental facts of Jesus are very, very, very deeply puzzling. And often we don't even like to say that out loud because it just doesn't seem like the right thing to say out loud when you're in church. And maybe your friends won't say it to you face to face because they don't want to offend you because they understand that you're a Christian. Uh, but for many people in our culture, these central ideas are very, very puzzling. Uh, this morning, we're going to look right at these questions. And uh, us well, usually I ask you to turn out your, get out your Bibles, and that uh, you can still get out your Bible. Uh, but really what we're going to do is just look at one very, very famous verse in the Bible. And, um, and we're just going to look at it because this very famous verse touches on these questions and many other questions which you and many people in our culture have about the Christian faith. And uh, Andrew, if you could put it up, that would be great. And uh, what I've done is provided an essentially literal translation of the verse. Uh, so some of you might have memorized it, maybe you've memorized it in the King James Version or memorized it in the NIV or the ESV. And uh, I thought what I would just do is I'd sort of mess with all your heads and uh, provide an essentially literal translation, because it's actually very beautiful. 
in the original translation, it begins and ends with Jesus. And, um, and uh, so there's a sort of a, a very specific form in it. And so what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at this because it touches on, on many of these questions and others. So it would be a great help to me if you all would just read this with me at this time. The one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's just say it again. The one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, you see, right off the bat, the text begins with something which uh, Muslims find profoundly confusing. In fact, actually, they will use these types of things, uh, a verse like this, to show that Jesus could not possibly have died on the cross. That if, in fact, they, they have a, maybe an easy time believing that Jesus could be such an exalted person, they just have a very hard time believing that anybody who's so exalted could possibly die on the cross. And as I said for others, that the idea that Jesus is the one who knew not sin is, is deeply confusing. It, it just seems to make Jesus very, very differently, very, very distant. The one who knew not sin. Well, here's what I want to suggest. Andrew, if you could put up the first point, and then I'll try to explain it. Believe it or not, the sinlessness of Jesus means that no one can identify with you and me as deeply as he can. I learned this, actually, as I was thinking about arguments in favor of abortion. When I was listening to arguments in favor of abortion, and it one day struck me, the sinlessness of Jesus means that no one can identify with you and me as deeply as he can. Now, you see, part of the problem uh, with this text uh, for Christians is that uh, we think of it a little bit like, uh, like math. Um, some people are really, 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 really good at math. And uh, maybe you're a little bit different, but I've often found that people who are really, 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 really good at math aren't often very helpful to people. Try, they can't help people who are very bad at math. Because for people who are very, very good at math, they just look, it's obvious. Like, you just look at it, it's obvious. How can you not get it? And to the person who doesn't get math, they just go, how can you get that? Nothing's obvious about that. And sometimes for a person who's really good at math and another person who can't do math, the gap is so big they can't even talk to each other. And so for many people, when we think of Jesus' sinlessness, we just think, well, gosh, how on earth can he relate to me? <laughs> like he just sort of, I mean, it's almost as if Jesus is just like made out of, I don't know, you know that... What's that made-up metal that uh, Wolverine has that's, you know, the hardest thing? Yeah, there you go. I'm, I, I like superheroes, but I'm not a superhero geek, okay? Just so you're clear. Can't often remember all this stuff. So, you know, it's as if Jesus is just, it doesn't even touch him. He's just so completely and utterly immune from sin. But this text is very, 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 um, uh, very, very powerful. Remember that the verse said, the one who knew not sin... For us, God made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And uh, in the original language, when it says knew not, um, it, it's really implying, and it's a bit of a tricky thing because it's implying for people who, who hear it that they sort of have an understanding of how the Bible talks about knowledge. It's, in fact, the very, very same word. Uh, when I talk about um, 
I'll just be, I have to use this, but when I talk about sex in church or in other uh, settings with Christians, and I want to talk about sexual intercourse, I use the biblical phrase um, that you're not to know a man or a woman outside of marriage. And that's the way the Bible talks about it. And uh, the Bible talks about a certain type of knowing that's, in a sense, a deeply personal knowing. It's a a knowing that's connected to, in a sense, um, a coming together of the truth, like an entering into. It's something comprehensive. It's something total. It's something that has an idea almost of covenant or communion or uh, something unitive that brings something together. And and so that is the, the way the Bible describes sexual intercourse as, as knowing one. And that's that same idea up in the Bible verse. Sorry, I keep pointing to it. It's my point, not the Bible verse. Could you put the point back up, the, the, the Bible text back up so I keep... Don't, there you go. The one who knew not sin. It, it's like this. I, I know that there's... I don't know how many women there are here today. I, I don't know. Maybe there's 70 women here. I know there's 70 women here. But I, I only know Louise. And that's the same type of sense here that it's being used of Jesus. It's not saying that he doesn't know that there's sin in the world. It's not saying that he doesn't know that sin and evil exists. It's saying that he knows all about sin, but he never knew sin, in a sense, in the way that I know Louise and Louise knows me. That he never committed sin and had that act in a sense of unity with sin. That's far from him. That's what his sinlessness means. Not that he was never tempted. He was. Now, some of you might be saying, George, how on earth does abortion, the argument for abortion, help you understand this text? Well, what's one of the main arguments for abortion? One of the main arguments for abortion is that the fetus can't possibly be human. Why can't the fetus possibly be human? Well, the fetus can't possibly be human. Why? The fetus has no inner life. The fetus doesn't make choices. The, the, demon, the, the fetus doesn't have any type of that type struggle which we connect so powerfully with being human. It, it's the same type of argument that goes on for euthanasia, for, for people maybe who enter into Alzheimer's. Is it their ability to make moral choices? To, I mean, you know, the, the whole realm of choices in inner life, it, it's very, very hard. It's a moral, there's moral things. Should I think this? What should I think? Should I plan for this? What should I not plan for? What should I move towards? What should I avoid? It all ultimately has a powerful moral component to it. And so if we know that Jesus actually understood moral choice and he experienced moral choice and he experienced the, 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 the chance of options, then we start to understand that, in fact, this idea, the one who knew not sin, if we start to understand that, in fact, the sinlessness of Jesus means that no one can identify with you and me as deeply as he can, it becomes like this. Let's say I, um, I'm going out on a car drive with you to Toronto and you and I both know somebody in common, and I have a piece of really juicy gossip on someone that we both know, and neither of us like this person. And I know some gossip about them. And if I tell you this gossip, and if I tell you this gossip in the right way, it'll make this person look really, really bad, and both of us will have a good time with each other, relishing how much we dislike them. 
Now, how long could you go on that car ride without telling the gossip? Some of you would say, George, like, the second I put on the seatbelt, <laughs> it's going to come right out. And some of you might say, well, I, you know, I, you know okay, what? maybe for some of us it's five seconds, five minutes, 15 minutes, three hours. Maybe gossip's not your thing. It would be an easy thing. You can pick your own can pick your own sin. But only the person who never gives in, so the person who who goes an hour before they give in to the gossip, they have a moral life, an internal, interior life that understands the full strength of the temptation, and they're able to see how the temptation comes at them this way, and then it comes at them this way, and then it comes at them this way. And then it sort of lies dormant, and then it jumps out at them all again. And they know that inner life, that inner experience for a full hour. But unless you have the ability to resist that temptation until the temptation no longer tempts you at all, and maybe that's going to be four hours, maybe it's going to be four years, maybe it's going to be 40 years, I don't know how long it is, but until you actually... It's only the person who understands the full power of the temptation and all of the different permutations and combinations it takes and never succumbs to it that really understands it. They live a far more deeply human experience than those of us who just give in to the temptation really quickly. In fact, actually, don't we usually think that people who give in to temptation instantly, what do we think they are? Shallow. Isn't that what we think they are? Shallow. What is it that we feel bad about ourselves if we give in to the temptation just like that? We worry that we're shallow. So in fact, this text, the one who knew not sin, actually opens up to us that rather than meaning that Jesus cannot identify with us, there is no one who can identify with you more than Jesus. That's why There's been such great hymns as what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. The sinlessness of Jesus means that no one can identify with you and me as deeply as as he can. Let's say this together. Nope. Oh, yeah. Sorry. There's the point. Go back to the scripture. Let's say this together. The one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But some of you might say, George, okay, one man. How can what happens to one man have any real bearing upon me? Uh, once again, when I was reading this book on the, on the Muslim who became a Christian, that was um, a very, very, very deep problem for him. How can it be that what happens to one man could possibly matter to him in terms of any type of eternal consequences. It comes up in this verse, the one who knew not sin, for us, for us, God made. For us, God. I mean, it's essentially literal translation, but I'm capturing that for some reason, in the text, is there's this sense that God makes Jesus a particular person with a particular status so that what he does can be done for us. If you put up the second point, uh, uh, 
Michael or Rebecca, that would be great. Jesus is the only person who could possibly represent you and me and every person. That's what this text is teaching. That Jesus is the only person who could possibly represent you and me and every person. When the Bible says, the one who knew not sin for us, God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it's declaring. It's declaring something which is all the way through the Bible. That Jesus is the only person who could possibly represent you and me and every person. And once again, we might wonder how on earth this could possibly be. Like on on one level, we have a, a bit of an understanding of representation that how one person represents us makes a difference. Um, I think it's Mickey, um, who is it, the, the famous actor who just died this week. I was meant to look, remind, Mickey Rooney just died this week, 93, 10 decades in show business. And in one article I said that his net worth upon his death was $18,000. How on earth could one be in Hollywood for 10 decades and die with a net worth of eighteen grand? It's because one of his children who represented him ruined him financially if the newspaper accounts are correct, which we're just assuming for a moment they are. Maybe they're not. Uh, some of us have been in the press at times, and papers don't always get it right, okay? So, uh, but, it, you know, on one level, we have this sense that, you know, what happens, uh, you know, uh, for a mother or a father in a family that they represent, in a sense, the family, and, and they have a, a, a that representative function and leadership function in a family, then it, it, it makes a difference. Uh, and, and we can understand how a head of state represents a country, um, the president or the, the head of state of China or the head of state of India, uh, in a sense, represents over a billion people. And, and I'm, not trying, I'm not denigrating uh, the, the head of state of China or the head of state of India at, at all by saying, on one, on one level, they can, they can represent a billion people, but on the other hand, I, I mean, I, I don't know if how many people in China or India would be happy if they died or wouldn't even know if they died or what... They're just sort of just mere human beings. But we, we understand that it, it is possible in a very, very powerful way for one person to have this representative power over many. You've, you've heard this illustration before, but it's a very, very good illustration. If terrorists were to take over Wem- Wembley Stadium when it was completely and utterly full and threaten to blow up a bomb killing everybody if uh, their ransom demands weren't met, if I phoned them up and said, if you let all 100 and whatever it is, 15,000 people go free, I'll, I'll give you my life to let the 115,000 go free, they would laugh at me. But if the Queen of England called up the terrorists and said, if, you, if I come into the stadium and sit on the bomb, uh, will you let the 115,000 go free? the terrorists would believe that they had gotten the greatest deal in the world because not only would they now think that they have, they've traded 115000 for the Queen of England and they would understand that all of England is now held captive. And given the number of people who are English and people of English heritage throughout the whole world, it might very well be that a billion people would be gripped by this offer and feel that they themselves were on that bomb. Queen of England. What this Bible is saying is that God makes Jesus that one who can represent us. 
I mean, how great can that not possibly be? I mean, on one level, the Queen of England is, I mean, you know, if you're being very, very cynical, I don't mean to offend the monarchists here, but, you know, but you might just say, well, you know, you know she had a, a daddy and, you know, daddy and a daddy and a daddy, and they just were a whole pile of barons, and they won a sort of a war, and, you know, it goes back to others, and it's just a whole pile of drunk guys who fought. I'm, I'm not offending the monarchists, okay? But it just happens to end up being Queen Elizabeth, who most people like because she's really sweet, even people who aren't monarchists. monarchists. You know, and, and, uh, and, and but how... And, and, you know, for the pre- President of the United States, I mean, he just won an election, and, 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 that, and right now his approval rating is very low, but it would still be true of him. But how much greater would it be? Doesn't it make sense that it could be possible that God would identify one person to represent all humanity? If we can understand that the Queen of England could, in a sense, represent all of England by her offer, can't we see that God could do that with this person, Jesus? And if he does it with Jesus, what possibly better person could it be than one, as we saw earlier, when it says, God, the one who knew not sin for us, God made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who could possibly better represent us than one that God chooses and one who can identify with us? Because to be honest, how much can the Queen of England identify with many people in England? I'm not, I'm not trying to... Paula, I don't want to offend monarchists. I really don't. But you understand, who better to represent us than one that God chooses and one who knows human experience so deeply so that every human being, he can identify with them. That's why I say that Jesus is the only person who could possibly represent you and me and every person. Let's say the verse together again. The one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Some of you might say, okay, George, so maybe I understand that Jesus, his sinlessness actually isn't a matter of keeping him distant from me, and sort of I can understand how with this idea of representation that maybe one man, what happens to him, could have an implication for me, that maybe he could represent me, and not just that he could represent every person. (laughs) How is it possible, and how is it fair that God would just pick this one guy, and this one guy has to die for me? Like, how is that possibly fair? Um, If you look at the verse again, the one who knew not sin for us, what does it say? God made sin. That's this idea of substitution. In fact, if you put up the, um, the, the point here, we'll see this. As he hung upon the cross, bleeding and dying, Jesus was the substitute. That's what this verse is teaching, that as he hung upon the cross, bleeding and dying, Jesus was the substitute. Those of you who come to this church know that I, I, I like movies and stuff like that, and um, uh, my wife and I have been watching a, a television show from one of the cable channels. I think it's A&E, uh, and it's Longmire, and uh, it's about uh, a sheriff in modern-day Wyoming. And in uh, spoiler alert, okay, spoiler alert if you're watching it. Uh, I won't tell you the episode, but there's a bit of a spoiler alert, and if you're, so hopefully I, haven't, I don't ruin a particular episode for you. 
But it, it was very, very interesting. It's a, the most popular show on this particular cable channel. And, and this, the, one of the episodes has this very, very powerful episode where um, uh, uh, a woman gets uh, hit by a, uh, a driver and left for dead. It's a hit and run. And um, it's very obvious once eventually that, the, uh, that um, this young man is the one behind the wheel. But then, uh, in, fact, in, in fact, actually, it's the, the sheriff, Longmire's daughter, who's hit. And she's uh, close to death. So the young man is facing a whole host of different charges. In fact, uh, there's a powerful scene uh, where Longmire throws the young man in jail. He lists off all the charges against him. And then as he's leaving, he says to his deputies, and any other charge you can think of, put it against him. And then, sort of very soon on in the show, the father of the young man comes, and his face is all banged up and beat up, and the father's a drunk, and he says that he's behind the wheel, that he was the one behind the wheel, that his son was innocent, that he had forced his son to drive. It's a very powerful interchange between the sheriff and this father, and at the end of it, the sheriff himself is, is, is struggling with his own guilt about his relationship with his daughter and how he had left her alone and not, um, not cared for her like he should have. And he, uh, he brings the father in of the young guy and he puts him in jail. And he says to his deputies who object to let the young man go free because he said the dad was the one behind the wheel. Because this dad had begged. He said, I've ruined my life. I've ruined my life. Let me go to jail for my son. And Longmire does it. The man goes to jail, and the son goes free. And later on in the episode, and this is where, you know, part of our culture, there's this sense that on one hand, we understand that we're gripped by what we can eat, what we can drink, what we can buy, what we can ride, what we can wear, what we can live in, what we can earn, and we're gripped by all that. But at the same time, there's a very powerful part of our culture that understands there's something mystical and that there's something more. And in this particular episode, the the sheriff ends up going through an Indian ritual, uh, which causes him great pain in the hope that his suffering will allow the great goddess, to heal his daughter. And that's where the spoiler alerts will end. Um, but it's a very, very fascinating idea that this, the most, power, most popular series on this particular cable channel, that deeply embedded in it is this sense of the appropriateness of substitution. And when the Bible here says that the one who knew not sin, for us, God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible is teaching that not only if Jesus actually can identify with us very, very deeply, more deeply than any other human being, even the person with the closest marriage, even the person with the closest friend, even the person who had the greatest mom in the world, Jesus can identify with you far more closely and deeply than any other person. And that Jesus is the one who can truly and utterly properly represent us, that there's 
both the fact that God would set up a person that could represent human beings and this powerful act of identification that there's no one better qualified to represent us than than Jesus is, that, that Jesus is the one who acts. When he's dying upon the cross, he's dying as an act of substitution. You see, Jesus doesn't do this because he's forced to by God. But just as in the illustration that I gave that this man who was a drunk and yet still loved his son out of love would willingly pay the penalty of a crime, of a whole list of crimes for his son, out of love for his son. And the sheriff would go through this torturous experience out of love for his daughter. We're so used to people with political power and prestige and representative power to not care about the little guy and the little gal. It's mind-boggling for us to think that one who could represent us and could identify with us would also love us and would love us so deeply and would love us so deeply that he would willingly take our place. In our culture, it's very, very common. If you were to go to the local coffee shops or the local bars or ask around your work, it's very common now for us in our culture to have some type of idea of karma. But when we think about karma, we think about it in a very intermittent way. We think about it more in, well, like this one particular time I was driving out in the country, and I was behind a very, 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 very frustrating driver. The speed limit was 80, and they were always driving 70. But as soon as they came to a flat piece of road where you could pass, and there were passing lanes, they sped up to 115, and I couldn't pass them. That was so frustrating for me. And then we come into this little tiny hole-in-the-wall community, and the speed limit went from 80 to 40, and they kept going 70, and a cop pulled them over and gave them a ticket. I'll confess later on a sin yet again that that made me happy. (laughs) There was a sense of divine justice in that. <laughs> As I tootle past them going 50, afterwards I would be able to go far faster. I had lived in the country for a while. I knew that rural police often hide in such spots to give people tickets. So, you know, we have. But what if, what if this idea that we usually just throw out this idea of karma, or what goes around comes around, or something like that, in a particular time when we've been wrong? But what if something like that is true? What if something like that is possibly true? And what if it's not just something that is just intermittent that, and then all the other times we can sort of forget about it and, and, it, and it's only inter, and it only happens sort of when there's like these like there's sort of big things, but what, what if there's something like that that's true? And what if it's something like that that's true and, it, and, and it, it goes on with what we think in our head and what we feel in our heart and what we do with our bodies and what we do when nobody's looking and, and how we think about people all the time and our moral evaluations and what if, in a sense, there's something like karma which is true in all of that that will one day come out and there has to be some type of price that's paid. And on one level, we understand that there's some sense, every person who understands something of what we now in our culture call karma, we understand that there's this sense of wrongdoing and a price to be paid. And Christians say, that sense that you have is a window into what truly is real. 
that your own self-centeredness, my own self-centeredness and pride is blinding me to and keeping distant from me. But the Bible is very, very clear-eyed, and God is very clear-eyed. And so as he hung upon the cross, bleeding and dying, Jesus was the substitute. He is the one who takes into himself, takes our place. Now, some of you might say, okay, George, that's, uh, oh, here, let's put the verse up again. Say it together. The one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, some of you might say, okay, George, even if something like that was to happen, you know, like look at that Longmire episode. Okay, so the drunk dad, he takes the place of the son. That's all very good. The son goes free. The son still has a broken arm, still has a messed up life. All those things go on. You know, Longmire and his daughter, whatever happens, she still has all the, you know, she's still unemployed. She has all these things that are messed up. So even if Jesus does something like that for me, where does that leave me? That verse again, the one who knew not sin for us, God made sin. What? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what the Bible's teaching. As he hung upon the cross, bleeding and dying, Jesus is not just offering to take our place. He is offering to trade places with you and me. As he hung upon the cross, bleeding and dying, Jesus is not just offering to take our place. He is offering to trade places with you and me. Imagine that they came up with a cure for cancer. But the problem with the cure for cancer is that it had to be a family member and they could take the cancer out of the person with the cancer. And if they had a person who was completely healthy, they would put the cancer into that person and that person's health would go back into the person who had cancer. So the one who originally had cancer would now have the healthy person's health, and the healthy person would now have that cancer. If they ever developed such a, a, such a cure for cancer, and one of my grandchildren had cancer, the only problem would be my wife and I would arm wrestle each other as to who would get to have the cancer. Who would take on the cancer and give their health? That would be the only argument in our family. And what we see with Jesus is something like that. That he, that when we talk about Jesus being our substitute, it's not just feelings that's involved, that The Jesus in the cross, it's an actual offer of exchange. The sinless one with his perfect relationship with the Father, an unbroken communion with the Father, that he dies on the cross and he willingly says, George, not only will I take upon yourself, myself, all the karma that should come upon you, I'm willing to trade places with you. That Jesus, God will relate to you, George, as if you are me. Bible uses words of, well, in, in, the, in the scripture text that we've been looking at again and again and again, the one who knew not sin, for us God made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's this offer of an exchange, of a trading of places. That's why 
what happens on the cross is not like what happened in that Longmire show, which just leaves people having been substituted but still stuck with their lives. That on the cross, there's this offer for us not only to have that karma dealt with, but to have a new status, a new identity, a new destiny, a new relationship with God that we have not earned, that we could not possibly earn, and that we do not deserve and could not possibly ever deserve. And Jesus does it because he loves you and me, not as abstractions, but as who we really are. That there is not a single person on the planet who could say to Jesus, Jesus, you can't possibly offer that. Do you know what I've done in my life? Do you know how I think? Do you know what goes on in my, between these, these two ears and behind the eyeballs? Do you know what goes on in my heart? Do you know my history? And for every one of us, Jesus says, yes, I do. I know all that. And still, it's because I love, I know, and I, I know, I know what you've been through. And I know those things that really, you've just been a victim, but I know those things that you have delighted in that were wrong and were, in a sense, karma really, did. I know all of that where the karma is deserved. And still, I will take your place. And still, I will offer to trade places with you. Put up the verse again. Say it with me. The one who knew not sin. For us, God made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Christian life begins when we move from saying to other people, Jesus is the Savior, to saying to Jesus, be my Savior. That's how the Christian life really is marked. From being able to say, Christians say that Jesus is the Savior, to maybe being able to say Jesus is the Savior, to saying to Jesus, to saying to God, Jesus, be my Savior. Be my substitute. I accept that offer of exchange. Be my great exchange. Be my Savior. That's how the Christian life begins. And we live the whole Christian life gripped by that and shaped by that. That's why the mission statement of this church increasingly is making disciples gripped by the gospel, living for the glory of God. To understand that this great act of identification and representation and substitution and exchange gives me this new status and this new identity. And as this truth grips me, well, then the idea of identifying with the weak or the poor makes sense. The idea of identifying with those who are victims makes sense. The idea of standing in the gap to represent makes sense. The idea of doing some act of, of offering, of giving of our money or of our time as, as an act of substitution or exchange, that the one who has no money, that we would give that money in, as an act of, 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 of substitution and exchange, that begins to make sense as the gospel grips us. It changes our life. But it begins, I put it here, I, I couldn't think of a point, if you could put up the final point, I couldn't think of a way to describe this in a simple line, so I thought I would just go what the Bible says, be in him, be in Jesus. Please stand.
maybe some of you, um, God has been sort of uh, zeroing in on you, and, and you can feel his finger upon you, and you've never, you've never made that move of going from Jesus is the, what Christians say is the Savior to Jesus is the Savior, saying, Jesus, be my Savior, be my substitution, be my exchange, and maybe the finger of God is upon you this morning, the Holy Spirit is upon you, urging you to say that to Jesus. And there's no better time than right now, today, in this place, to say that, to make that, say that to Jesus. There's no better time than right now. It won't be better when you finish the degree. It won't be better when you've paid off the mortgage. It won't be better when you've, you've moved into the condo. No better time than right now. And there's nothing magical about my words, but I'm going to say it's actually a, a word from within the bulletin, the groin and grace section. I'm going to say slowly a prayer, and if the finger of God, the Holy Spirit is upon you, I'll, I'll say a, a very short fragment, and there'll be a, a period of silence. I invite you, you don't have to say it out loud, it's just a, a transaction between you and Jesus. All I'm doing is helping put into words what the Holy Spirit is urging you to say. And there's no better time than right now to do it. And just do it silently. I'll leave time, and I urge you, I beseech you, I implore you to do that. Jesus, you are the sinless one. You tasted every temptation to its full strength without giving in to the temptation. You represented me on the cross. You died in my place. You traded places with me. Thank you. Be my savior. I want to be in you today and forever. Make me your disciple gripped by this gospel, living for your glory. Amen. Just continuing by in our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for what he did upon us on the cross. We ask, Father, for everyone here who is yours, that you would make us disciples gripped by the gospel, living for your glory. And Father, if there are any here today who gave their lives to Jesus for the first time, I ask that your Holy Spirit would fall mightily upon them, mightily upon them in a deep way, drawing them close to Jesus, Jesus close to them. And all this I ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.